0: Today's sponsor is Audible, with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com decode. We'd also like to thank Qualcomm for making today's show possible. First, they connected the phone to the internet. Now they're connecting the internet to everything else. Qualcomm, they're the restless inventors bringing the future forward faster.
1: Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media.
0: I am Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. You may know me as the only person who was verified on Twitter before it was cool. It's still not cool actually, but in my spare time I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com recodedecode Recode Decode, and while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Brett Taylor, the CEO of Quip and a longtime serial entrepreneur. Quip was a corporate collaboration service that just a few weeks ago was bought by Salesforce for $750 million. That is a lot of money. He's also a board member at Twitter now and was formerly the CTO of Facebook. Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And here to interview Brett with me is Rico's senior social media editor Kurt Wagner. Hey Kurt. Hello. How you doing? I'm so good. we're going to talk about a lot of things. Uh, but Kurt and I are going to pepper you with endless questions. But let's talk a little bit about you. We're going to talk about Quip and where it went, but talk a little bit about your background. You've had you've been everywhere. You know, you've done a lot of companies. Do you want me to start
2: from the beginning? Start from the beginning. Yeah, so Graduated from Stanford and Marissa Meyer recruited me to Google as Mm -hmm. an associate product manager. So So I was there for about five years. Yeah. So started off on search and crawl. There weren't that many products there at the time at Google. And then... Eventually, was asked to do local search, which ended up segueing into Google Maps, which I launched with Lars and Jens Rasmussen in 2005, mm-hmm. which is definitely my proudest product yep. achievement there. Yep. So Lars and Jens had a, a piece of Windows software called Expedition mm-hmm. that we acquired the assets of. And, and then the, when they got to Google, we, we created this web mapping version of mm-hmm. the product that became Google Maps. We also acquired Keyhole, which Keyhole. became Google Earth. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it was an awesome experience. I think when we launched, there was like six of us. I don't think we anticipated yep. the response. And then I stayed through mid two thousand seven, and then started a, a relatively unsuccessful social network called FriendFeed. FriendFeed, uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, got a
0: lot of attention.
2: It was. I always joke it was like the uh, Apple Newton of social networks, where <laughs> the product itself didn't succeed, but it, it did influence. Like we invented the like button. We the way we did commenting, sort of. Made its way into a lot of other social networks and uh, sold that to, to Facebook in 2009.
0: What happened that it didn't succeed? Because there were a bunch of there was Friendster, there was it was all friend oriented. Yeah, you know we what very I mean? friendly. What? Um, why didn't it succeed? It, it was it was similar to Facebook but not the same.
2: You know, actually, I would say it's probably more similar to Twitter in the sense it was a follower model, yeah. and most of the profiles were public, and that leads to people following people they're interested in more than necessarily like just following their friends. Mm-hmm. And it was very oriented around discussions, so commenting and liking. So like
0: Reddit too. I mean, yeah, it's just, yeah,
2: very similar, and. Uh, you know, we were big in Turkey and Iran oh. and, you know, the typical death of a social network, you become... <laughs> Orcid, remember yeah, yeah, I remember exactly.
0: Google people saying, you know, we're big in Brazil. I'm like, you're acting like that's a good thing. Like, yeah, you know, it's good for Brazil, but not for
2: it, you. You know, candidly, I, you know, looking back, everything's easy in hindsight. I think we ended up where we were sort of an awkward hybrid between what Facebook did and what Twitter did. Um, if you were a public figure on FriendFeed, people's comments would sort of be attached to your posts. So... You would almost feel like these random people were like spewing stuff on your profile yeah. page, which works in in Facebook because it's your friends. So mm-hmm. uh, you know, within the there's social etiquette involved. So
0: friends you know spewing. So. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. Um, politics aside, yeah. whereas Twitter, you know, even though I think it's somewhat flawed, you know, the way replies worked, it wasn't really on your profile; it was on their own, and. So we ended up creating a a thing where I don't think we were opinionated enough about whether we were for friends or for followers. And so despite that, though, I think the product was good in its own way. Does it make you
0: think, why does something stick? Is it luck or is it?
2: Consumer products are hard because there's the product quality, but there's time and place and marketing. It was interesting when we lost to Twitter, which I think is fair to say we did. We like in the sense, I don't think we were really competing against Facebook directly, Uh, it was when Oprah and Ashton Kutcher and Obama sort of all in succession adopted the product and we, we, yeah, Twitter, not friend feed. And, uh, we realized we weren't really focused on like marketing and outreach and all these things that being a bunch of geeks, we were just hopelessly naive about. And, and I, and so, you know, you look back and was it the product or was it that, or was it a combination? How much money did you raise? Uh, we raised five million dollars.
0: Okay, not much.
2: Yeah, not, not much. much. Yeah, and did, we had most of it in the bank when
1: we. Sold. Did you have any idea how big the the feed would become? Right, because at this point, newsfeed didn't even really exist. It was just people writing on each other's walls. Right. Yeah, so- there were
2: there were early versions of it, and um, we what we really wanted to do at the time was we wanted to be sort of the news feed for the internet where. You you could use a photo service like Flickr, and it, your your followers could see that you published it, and kind of be that social layer on top of the rest of the web. I think that sort of there's sort of a chicken and egg problem there, though, that we didn't quite crack. You know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that was a weird mixed metaphor. Yeah, that was. Uh, get, I was wondering if you did that. on purpose. Yeah, uh, but I think the vision was interesting, and certainly as Facebook did things like Open Graph and things like that, we a lot of the reason why I think. Mark decided to acquire the company was we really shared in that vision of what it means to like make these products more social and can be that sort of social glue.
0: Why did you decide to sell? What was the, the story behind it? Uh,
2: fundamentally, we just knew we had lost. So, you know, these are there's not like a silver medal in social networking, you no. know, like whereas in enterprise software, you can build a healthy business and, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily winner takes all. Once we were sort of, Twitter was more popular, but we were, we were gaining on them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you Obama and Oprah and all that, and you know, their Oprah. graph if you graphed us together, our graphs started to like mm-hmm. merge into the X axis. <laughs> and uh, There used to be
0: a lot of search products and then there was Google.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so we did one redesign, which was like the dead cat bounce. And then we're like, okay, <laughs> we're either going to pivot in Silicon Valley terms or right. sell. And we really cared about social networking though. I mean, we didn't get, develop this product just for fun. And we really felt passionate about it. And so we ended up talking to to a bunch of different folks, including Facebook, and Facebook's offer ended up being the most compelling. And mm-hmm. also, you know, honestly, I, I didn't know Mark well at the time, but I, I really, like, in that process, you know, it's funny, you walk out of the place, you're like, yep, now I know why we lost to them. This yeah. place is really smart. Yeah, yeah. And so I was just really impressed, and Paul Buchheit, who's one of my um, co-founders, really right. felt the same way, and we really, like... Uh, decided it was the right thing to do for us. Who, who else were you guys talking to? Like, who else were you, you shopping say the company now. To? The, oh, no, Yeah, yeah, no. Like no we we right. talked to everyone you expect, Twitter, Google, you know. Um, we really sort of ran a process because we were trying to sell the company, so it wasn't like we were being cagey about it. We mm-hmm. sort of sent the word out that, mm-hmm. you know, we were shopping ourselves. And interestingly enough, and I, I didn't really appreciate this at the time, it was my first company, but the offers are all kind of different, you know. It's just sort of like the structure and who you work for. And like, so, you know, with... Google, it wasn't, like, just the money. We're like, do they actually get social? You know, do they actually want to do this? And I shall answer that for you. today. and and it wasn't, we respected the people there. We knew them, but we really wanted to work on social networking. Like, we were passionate about it. So it was interesting. At first, you sort of think you shop around, you get a bunch of price tags back, you pick the highest one. And I learned through that process that actually, like, the relationships and the conversations – actually turned out to be as meaningful as the financial part of those deals. Was um, it
0: was it even close or just you just yeah, like Facebook? Yeah, they were
2: all, they, I think we really respected Twitter as well. Um, so I think because we wanted to work in social networking, you know, that was probably the one we seriously considered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's hard because when you do get in those things, you do, you walk out of, I remember when we were doing funding for Recode, walking on meeting going, no, 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 no. Like, and I don't, and it was a great place. Yeah. If I said the name, you'd be like, oh, wow.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it is really weird because you, you fundamentally, you know, you gonna have golden handcuffs or, you know, where you have a financial incentives to stay and you have your employees who candidly aren't participating in the decision to sell the company. And so you really want to do right by everybody and pick a place where people are going to be happy and their careers will thrive and you can be proud of. And so there's a lot of emotions and sort of more qualitative things you consider. And as I said, you know, it's your first company, you don't really think about it. And then you're in the process and you're sort of overwhelmed with this, the, these data points. And I'm really happy with what we decided. I, I, we were talking earlier and the relationships I end up developing at Facebook have been some of the most meaningful in my career. And I... I wouldn't have anticipated that. It was just a really good outcome for us. So. You you then
1: became CTO of Facebook, That's right? Correct. For like 3 years or Different so. Tech, yeah.
0: That's a big job. Yeah, yeah, it is
1: a big job. I mean, what was the company like when you so how did the company transition from 2009 to 2012 when you were there? Like what I'm sure there was a lot, but like what are some of the main takeaways that you can think about from your time there?
2: So One is we were scaling the company really rapidly. I'd seen that at Google, but not at the level of seniority. You know, I was much more of an individual contributor at Google. So you just sort of go along with the ride. Mm
0: -hmm. There's a lot of those at Google.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And at Facebook, you know, I was a participant in those discussions about how do we scale, who do we scale, how do we bring on leadership in this area, that area. There were a couple of bigger events, the shift to mobile and the IPO were both. Meaningful and complicated, and we made some missteps, and I think those for me were the most intellectually interesting, just because you learn how to make mistakes at scale and correct them at scale. And and I hadn't really done that at Google. You know, Google Maps I'm really proud of, but it was small. We we're starting from sure. scratch, so yeah, it's there's easier. Nobody watching yeah, it's not like you're going public. Well, the company's shifting to mobile, <laughs> and your monetization products hadn't made the shift yet, and you know that kind of complexity is was really new to me, and I and really rewarding to mm-hmm. be honest.
0: And the shift to mobile, how hard was that? I, that was know, a big decision at Facebook they did it.
2: Yeah, know, they and had the I,
0: phone I, they didn't have the phone. There was a lot of you definitely,
2: know. and I you know we made lots of mistakes through that process. And the most widely talked about was the the commitment to HTML five versus yeah. native apps and. It was interesting because I I sort of don't regret any of the decisions we made. I sort of wish we had changed faster. But when we first were making mobile apps, um, there's a lot more platform diversity. Blackberry was very popular. Android wasn't quite popular, and it started out really fragmented. Mm -hmm. It never quite had any consolidation. And iOS was popular, but only in certain countries, not in many of the countries in which we had really strong growth initiatives. Um, And so we ended up sort of saying, okay, if there's going to be a lot of platform diversity, we want to, you know, uh, pick a technology strategy that makes us Facebook on equal footing on all these platforms. Then quickly, Android and iOS just won. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was, okay, okay, our strategy is completely flawed. Let's make the best <laughs> of read experience for both of these. And, you know, the thing you learn about a, a larger company is even if your decision was good before, it's not just changing your decision. You have to, like, bring everyone along with you. Yeah. You, know, you have all these engineers who are committed to one strategy, right. and they were for different reasons. Like You might have been for business reasons, but they were for ideological reasons, like it's the open web. And right. you know, now yeah. you need to shift the strategy, the product. You need to retrain people. It's different programming languages. Yeah. That was a thing that was very humbling for me is, you know, it's like, oh, I made a small mistake now that I've spent and a year relates, to unwind. Yeah. Oh, so you and were all
0: committed to that phone. And we talked to Chamath about it. Like, it was like an effort to get in there, too.
2: Yeah, you know, it's hard to say. Like, I think people sort of overstate the experiments at these mm-hmm. places. Like, I never viewed that as like the strategy by any means, because the context around Facebook and mobile is interesting, where it's, it is the most popular application Absolutely. for a lot of people. But it doesn't necessarily mean you want it to be the centerpiece of the the product too and and so at the same time, there's like just a lot of experiments in that area. and I do think that like the one thing I would say is that like you want to create a company culture where you're willing to take big bets and fail and that's okay. And I think that's one of the things Mark Zuckerberg, I think in the industry is probably the best at mm-hmm. and where you're willing to like do it, cut your losses, move on right. and I think we we as an industry sort of like f- overfix it on the failures a little bit because it's interesting. It's like, wow, this perfect person's flawed. They made a bad decision. Let's right. all talk about it. The thing that companies die though, because they stop doing that, you know, so let's take a more recent example or less prominent example where the, they canceled the paper product. But if you look at the newsfeed interactions in the main newsfeed app, it's almost all from that product, you know, there was mm-hmm. almost, so on one sense, the paper product wasn't successful, but as a user interface R&D lab, it was immensely successful. Well, the
0: Newton wasn't successful, but the iPhone was. Yeah, exactly. It's, and it's, so a, it's a bright line. It is. And
2: so I think a little bit when you're thinking about these larger companies is like, how do you organizationally let people deal with failure? How do you distinguish between like good intentions that just didn't work out, not a product market fit versus bad execution? And it's very hard to decipher at a larger company. Um, there there's a joke at Google where it's like, you can make the worst product in the world, but you have a link from the Google homepage. You you're going to be successful by any mm-hmm. objective metric. Mm-hmm. How do you distinguish reader? between the good products? Remember the news? Reader? Yeah. Oh, What's yeah. It like a there's, reader, yeah. And it is really challenging at a big firm to say, who are the good product managers? Who has good product sense? Because it's just such an artificial environment. And when was a failure, a good investment that just didn't turn out versus a just horrible strategy. And it, on the mobile side, it was so important for the company to get mobile right. I, I almost don't regret any of the bad investments we made because it really shifted the whole company to be mobile-oriented. At the end, you cut the the bad products out, and I think Facebook's mobile strategy is one of the strongest oh, in the industry. Is. Could you have done that and like threaded the needle and not made any mistakes to get there? I, I'm not sure that's that would have been possible. Is so. there is there any need, or do
1: you ever foresee Facebook trying to do an operating system type thing again, like a Facebook home but you know, version 2.0 or something like that?
2: You know, Facebook and Google and others have just gotten so broad and ambitious. I think the answer to almost any question is yes, there's probably going (laughs) to be some group there that does those things. But, you know, is it mobile? Is it for virtual reality headsets? You know, I I could... So, Or is it... They need an embedded operating system for drones. You know, at some stage, when your market cap is big enough, you... To like actually expand your company, you need to look at like bigger and bigger markets, which is why you get things like Alphabet, why you get virtual reality, and you know. Although I think
0: I think we can agree that Facebook's not as crazy as Google.
2: I think that's, that's correct. True. I mean, yeah, I, would, I
1: would.
0: By agree. a factor of a lot. <laughs> yeah. Mark seems to have some more sense.
2: Focused, it feels. Right? Yeah. It
0: seems not crazy. Really. <laughs> that's uh,
2: what I'm Well, the good thing is, I think Mark's been. You know, when he lays out his mm-hmm. ten-year plan for the world. I think that's one of his strongest tight. characteristics tight. as a leader. Is so he just? Tweet yeah Remember from Austin <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> but I think it's great because as a company, you kind of know where you're going and where you where these products fit, and I think that's a really stabilizing force at a company because the hardest part for me at Google it's gotten much better, but at the end, they had all these projects that sort of existed, but no one knew if they were going to launch or not launch, and you end up with this like deep anxiety if you made something about where it lived, would you be canceled tomorrow? And mm-hmm. um, that's changed a lot, but uh, that was definitely a negative part of the end of my experience. Coving,
0: yeah, it's sort so. of the island of missed toys. or remember, yeah. remember from the yes, thing. Yeah. All right, we're talking to Brett Taylor, who is a longtime entrepreneur. He recently sold Quip to Salesforce for $750 million. And we'll talk about Quip when we get back. Today's show is brought to you by Audible, which is an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. You can listen to all of that wherever you are thanks to Audible's free apps on iOS, Android, and Amazon devices. It's not a streaming or rental service. With Audible, you own the books. Brett, what book should I listen to next? I've been listening to The Fall of Giants, Ken Follett, but what. what I would was you...
2: uh, looking through my Kindle mm-hmm. and I started rewatching that really old Ken Birds documentary on the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So I've been reading this like a uh, Civil War, and Civil War. And, like narrative book by Shelby Foote. Oh, it's Shelby like, Foote. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah in
0: the, he's in the documentary.
2: Yeah, and so I, I saw him on that. And he's the avuncular being... southerner. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I, I love history books uh, yeah. just because, especially ones Me that too. try to tell stories, because I just love sort of like transporting myself into time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, TBD on the quality. I haven't yeah. finished it yet. I'll but. give
0: you another recognition Confederates in the Attic. Oh, is that good? Which is amazing. It's about people who replay the Confederacy today, yeah. you know, dress up. Great book. Fantastic. I will take a look. Fantastic at that. book. When you become an Audible member, you get a free book every month put a 30% discount for all regularly priced audiobooks. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash decode, download a title free, and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash D-E-C-O-D-E. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today. We're here with Brett Taylor, who is a longtime Silicon Valley entrepreneur. He's done a million things, um, worked at Facebook and Google, and started another company called Quip that just recently got sold to Salesforce. We're also here with Kurt Wagner, our senior editor, who covers social media, and we're talking about Silicon Valley and all of Brett's different things he's been doing. Talk a little bit about Quip.
2: Yeah, so uh, Quip, we were So trying, you left Facebook. Like, we left Facebook. That's hard.
0: Why, why? Like, you leave companies, which is really interesting. Um,
2: yeah, yeah. Uh, In part because I wanted to work with Kevin Gibbs, my Mm -hmm. co-founder. So we uh, met at the tail end of my career. I had done the Google Maps API, which is how services like Yelp embed Google Mm -hmm. Maps inside of their products. And uh, Kevin Gibbs was starting App Engine, or what came to be known as App Engine. And they didn't know what product team to align him with because there's not many developer products at Google at the time. So they just said, go work with Brett. He does the Maps API. Mm -hmm. That's the closest thing we have. And uh, I ended up leaving before App Engine launched, but we developed a pretty close relationship. And in the back of my mind, I knew I always wanted to work with him. We Facebook had gone public, and he was on uh, about to go on paternity leave and said, I'm definitely leaving Google, and I want to start a company with you. And I got the impression if I didn't, he was going to do it anyway. Oh, okay. and I. I just, he's a really special guy and I really get along with him. So, ended up sort of making the decision because Facebook had gone through this big transition to IPO and it felt like it wouldn't be too disruptive to my colleagues. And I didn't want to give up the opportunity to work with Kevin, basically.
0: So, talk about Quip, what you were doing there.
2: <clears throat> um, we're essentially trying to create the next generation productivity tool, um, essentially, sort of the successor to Microsoft Office. Um, the core thing that we try to do differently is build communication deeply into the product experience. Um, So you don't need to go into email or go into chat to actually talk about what you're working on. And so every document has a embedded chat thread and you can chat in and around the document. And our customers essentially use it to sort of move away from email and and collaborate. Um, So we have documents, spreadsheets, chat and checklists, and uh, people use it essentially as a collaboration tool. And we've we launched about three years ago, almost exactly three years ago, and as you mentioned, just uh, sold this to Salesforce this so, month. So
0: we'll get into why you sold, because yeah. there's been a lot of sales lately, but there's a lot of productivity, tools. I is mm-hmm. Part of that is Slack, part of that is other things. Yeah. What were you trying to differentiate? You know, I think some ex-Facebook people, they had Asana. There's a bunch of them.
2: There are a bunch of them. I think, to answer a question you didn't really ask, but I think there's a lot of them right now because the sort of legacy productivity suite is becoming a little bit more antiquated. Like Mm -hmm. very few people write a memo in Microsoft Word and email it to someone. They just write an email because I think the value of communication is more important than the features of a personal productivity tool. Like you'd rather give up fonts and and footnotes to have the recipient be able to click reply and respond to what you wrote. So our premise was that rather than design around the authoring experience, design around communication exclusively. Mm-hmm. So, What,
0: you don't want 900 fonts?
2: Yeah, so our, our document tool has an inbox, and it has notifications. It has all these things you'd find in social networks or communication products, and it is really different in practice because of that. People don't use it, they don't attach a Quip document to something else, they just do it inside of Quip. And it is really different um, for our customers. They really do reduce email, reduce um, meetings, things like that. I think what's going on now, though, is we're definitely in this period in productivity where there's just a, a thousand flowers blooming and people right. are trying to say, like, what is the next productivity experience look like? And certainly we're trying to prove it's us, but we haven't yet. Um, but I do think you're just seeing that the confluence of, of Microsoft's uh, waning importance in this and mm-hmm. the experience of Office waning in sort of in, within waning the work. Waning is a kind word. <laughs> yeah. That's troublesome. Well, it's not like everyone still has Office on their computer. It's not mm-hmm. like it's gone. It's just that. It's not the first thing you open as much anymore. You not use email on your phone. You, you're chatting. So I think people see it as an opportunity. A lot of people see an opportunity to, to say, okay, what does the next generation experience look like? You know, and it's fun as a product developer because you know we're, I'm not saying we're perfect or right in every way, but you get to start from carte blanche to say, okay, given the way modern teams work, like what's the tool that would fit that way of working? Um, and companies like Slack and Asana and Quip are all trying to take on this at different angles and. My guess is, in some number of years, we'll start to see some consolidation as one proves to be the the winning pattern. Mm-hmm. But it's a really fun time right now because I think there's just so much experimentation and innovation right now. That was actually what I was just going to
1: ask you because when you look around, it's a little overwhelming. I kind of think of it as similar to messaging. Right? There's like 50 different ways that I could send yeah. someone a text-like message. Do you think you guys are going to be, you know, the first domino to fall? Like, are we going to see a bunch of other kind of uh, productivity companies get scooped up by bigger players in the near future? Was there a lot of appetite for, you know, when you guys got acquired, were you, were you seeing a lot of appetite out there from the bigger guys?
2: It's hard to know whether, whether you'll see consolidation in our space specifically, I think in the tech industry broadly right now, there's consolidation Absolutely. and I think it's just because there's a handful of tech companies with, you know, much healthier businesses than others. And, and so I think that's why you saw, you know, LinkedIn get sold Um, And I do think that there's a handful of technology companies that are just in a much more leveraged position. And that's going to put them in a position where they can expand into new markets and get companies where they can afford companies they used to not be able to afford. And so I think you're going to see consolidation across the industry. Productivity is interesting. I think... We are in a period of rapid experimentation, so it really depends on sort of the strategy of the company. In this case, Salesforce really felt like they wanted to move into this this space, um, but it was that sort of unique to individual companies. They've
0: been picking up these things. Why can't these companies do it themselves? Like, why can't the Microsofts, the, the Salesforces, the Googles? The Google's been putzing around in the document space, but didn't create Slack. Neither did Microsoft or Whip or anything else. What happens? Does it have to happen outside? with yep. these smaller companies that they then acquire.
2: It's a really good question. It's really hard to create new businesses at existing companies and one of the ways to think about it is if your market cap is, you know, 200 billion dollars or mm-hmm. something, to create a new business and decide to invest in it, it's hard because at every stage of its life cycle it's inconsequential right, <laughs> to right. the business. So you to create a culture where you actually identify those things when they're inconsequential but you want to see them grow is really challenging and you tend to see these things, you know, when we launched Quip, it sort of you know we didn't have any customers. Right. We had to work and iterate and find the few threads that were popular among our customers mm-hmm. and invest in them. And I don't know that many large companies have the patience to do things like that. So using the market broadly as like an R and D lab, where you like validate new markets and find product market fit, it tends to be easier, even though it's probably less cost effective. It's just really hard to do that. And and it's interesting. We were talking earlier about. You hear these people, I have some friends at these larger firms who are like, oh, I don't, I'm i not going to do a startup. I'm going to do a startup within yeah, yeah, they Google like or with a startup us, yeah. within Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I always go, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it never really works because you just don't have the same incentives. You don't have the same risk and reward, but you also don't have the same patience. You know, A year into something, if it doesn't have 100 million users or 100 million revenue or whatever it is, you're going to get canceled. Right. And almost no product in history has grown that quickly, Pokemon Go aside. Mm-hmm. Um, right. and. And I think that's why it's. That was just outside crazy. of Google, though. Yeah, it was. It was.
1: was that weird, yeah. by the way, to see your mapping technology being
2: well? Actually, John Henke was the CEO of Keyhole, which yep. we acquired, yeah. so that's I right. know him really well. Yep. I, it's it's so great to. I mean,
0: yeah, and it was field trip before. I think
2: every entrepreneur loves to see these things take off. I yeah. mean, it's yeah. everyone in the valley is rooting for that company. I mean, it's just yeah. so cool to see that kind of success after. I mean, they were a really patient team. They went through a lot the of iterations. Trip, remember, yeah. I went to
0: the field trip debut. I was like, "This is dull." John. Yeah, like I, don't, yeah. I, I would love to know about Susan B. Anthony, but not that much. Or whatever <laughs> he was
2: doing. So, I mean, just talk about passion on a team and yeah. commitment to an idea, and so it's such an awesome story.
0: Yeah. yeah, it is absolutely. So, in in starting up, your goal is not to sell it, correct? I mean, I, I want to talk a little bit about the sale thing. You're seeing sales. I mean, I have a piece that I still haven't written, where my lead is if. Jeff Weiner was a Russian female gymnast, she'd have gotten a ten on the dismount. You know what I mean? Have a 10. But like there's a lot of like the like jig is up. Is it the jig is up or we can't get any further? Or I mean I know Silicon Valley people like to put a victory as mine, like Travis in China, I won because I didn't win, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. But
2: No, it is complicated. You're absolutely right. Like I think every entrepreneur is lying to you if they don't right. say they like they want to create the next Google or sure. the next Microsoft. The interesting thing is so there's two types of acquisitions for those in listeners who are not familiar. There's talent acquisitions and strategic acquisitions. Talent acquisitions tend to be in the kind of like one to $50 million range, and you're acquiring like a team of people. You're going to dissolve the product and put those people on other projects. You tend to do it for the team. You mm-hmm. just want their point of view in your product. And then there's strategic acquisitions. Where you actually want the product, the technology. Those tend to be higher values and also structured differently as well. The strategic acquisitions are interesting because you essentially are evaluating like, okay, evaluate the independent path and all the pain and struggle you'll go through, but the value of the independence, the ego, and all mm-hmm. those things versus... No balls. The, yeah, exactly. So for, for Quip, we do care a lot about this space. We do think that we have a new way of working that's better. Um, mm-hmm. And to have the platform of one of the largest direct sales forces in the world to be able to you know, spread that to, to more companies is worth the trade-off of losing some of that independence. As I mentioned earlier, the FriendFeed acquisition, a lot of it is personal, too. Like, I really got along with Mark. Yeah. Um, I think he's a really wonderful human being. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's not, like, a huge tax for me to work for him. Like, I'm looking forward to mm-hmm. it. And I think all those you things You can also up.
0: ignore 73% of things he says. <laughs> he
1: doesn't <laughs> I, mind. But I when love you get that. to 74, don't.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and so, uh, really, when it came down to it's it like you're sort of weighing all those qualitative things. But it's not, like, a black-and-white decision. I mean, you sit there... Kevin and I were just sort of in you know, a lot of naval gazing. You're just like, oh my gosh, is this the right thing? Had you to do? gotten
0: the acquisition or did you say, uh oh, we better sell? Like, because with friend feed, you're like, uh oh, we better sell. Uh,
2: we we had, uh, hadn't even started spending the money raised in our Series B. Which is how much? $30 total. million dollars in total. our Series B. No, 45 total. Okay. Um, and so we hadn't even started spending our money from our Series B. So we weren't necessarily in the position where, not definitely not necessarily, we were definitely not in the position There's where we a needed pressure. to sell we really felt like we wanted Quip to grow faster and this was a really great way to do it and we felt really aligned uh, with the team at Salesforce and so you know you're weighing two completely different things and so you're right that like it would have been probably in the grand scheme of things creating the next Google is awesome but you also have to weigh reality into it and this is a way that our product can thrive and grow faster and we were more excited about that than the the cost mm-hmm. we were, we were talking
1: about this right before we sat down this tr- I said trend but where companies acquire someone and then they just try to be hands-off, right? So you guys are going to continue to operate independently, uh, essentially? Like, how's that going to work, number one? And then number two, has this been happening more often where a company will acquire like a WhatsApp and Instagram and just say, we're just going to let you keep doing your thing, but under our umbrella?
2: Yeah, that's a a really good question. I mean, so we are going to be independent. Like, we're in our own office. I work directly for Mark. And so you know, we they do want Quip to exist, and they want to, and which is great. The structure is interesting. I mean, the interesting thing is like I don't want Quip to be completely independent because then we're just the same position we were yeah. the day before the acquisition. And you so, want their help? Yeah, and, and so the interesting thing is like where you decide to integrate, and you know how you decide to integrate, and, and I think the best acquisitions where they chose those membranes really thoughtfully. So I think, you know, with Instagram, you know, the way they've done account integration, the way your friend list makes its way into Instagram, like really thoughtful things that I think have probably accelerated Instagram's growth, but the product experience and the culture of the product really feels unique and separate. So that's sort of what the process that, you know, we'll have to go through once this closes is just figuring out, okay, what is Quip and where do we want to actually leverage this amazing organization that we're now a part of? The interesting thing is I do think that, YouTube, Instagram, like some of the most notable successes have changed people's perceptions of how to do mm-hmm. acquisitions and mm-hmm. integrations. And I think it is really great that those They're exist. They're
0: far fewer though. They are.
2: Yeah. There's yeah. always
0: a weasel. That's what I would say. Yeah. There's always well, there's always
2: bad ones as well. Yeah. Um, and well, there's always
0: a couple weasels at companies yeah. that create that problem. Yeah,
2: totally. And, yeah. and you know, I, the good thing is because I've been on the other end of this, too, I feel like both com- like we and they are going at this with a lot of maturity and very tr- like transparent communication, so I feel very optimistic about What's it.
0: What's your hope? What, that they will further accelerate the growth, presumably? That's it.
2: Yeah, I mean, at a very high level, I just think that our products are really complementary, and yeah. so they view this is a way of they can provide more value to their customers. And for us, it means that we get this platform to, to grow faster.
0: But you don't want to be like, a, I'm, I don't want to pick on Microsoft, but Skype and Yammer, where the, where the hell did they <laughs> I know they're saying they grow, but the potential of those things were it, so much It larger. is, you
2: know, it's so complicated because like, you know, it's, it's sort of like you could do a really long analysis of why, you know, Someone Yammer like is different than Instagram. And, and yeah. there's a lot of reasons. And so, you know, it's sort of you, like I'm sort of trying to hold myself accountable to make this successful. And that's sort of on me. And, I went into this because I believe we can, uh, but it is complicated. I mean, what
0: would be your flashpoint? Like, no, 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 no. Like when you're in this as someone who was acquired, not someone that's doing the acquiring.
2: What do you mean by flashpoint? What
0: the, would they do? That would you go, no, I don't, what would, what's the things that are really important to you, to this working?
2: You know, one of the things I think I feel really proud of at Quip is the team that we've built. Um, we've recruited really well. Um, we have a very small, but very productive team. And, uh, Keeping our the culture and how we grow our team is very very important to me. Um, I think every entrepreneur says this, but it is true. Like the way you make your product is actually very important in how it manifests itself to the world, and it's unique at every company. And I think our culture is really strong, and it's something that I really want to maintain.
0: Are you going into Salesforce Tower? I hear uh, it's we're sinking.
2: We're, keep, we're we're in our separate <laughs> office for now. So. Okay. Yeah, um, it's probably way nicer than our office. Yeah, so. yeah,
0: you don't want to go in there. That's, that's...
1: Yeah, I I guess one of my big questions is, you know, I was looking at your list of customers, Facebook and Instagram, and I know that Facebook wants to, has its own like Facebook at work thing that's also kind of building. Is yeah. that awkward? Like, are you a competitor with them? Like, why are they, what do they use you guys for versus what are they, you know, doing on their own?
2: Yeah. So as far as I know, Facebook uses quick for everything and for, in terms of documents and Facebook at work, they use for groups and messaging. Mm-hmm. Um, that's at least my perception. And so we're, we view it as very complimentary. When you sell into these larger companies, you always end up overlapping yeah, with a lot of their right. existing tools. And so I really don't even worry about it. What we look at is daily active and weekly active users. And we look at that as a ratio to the number of employees as that's our main health metric for all of our customers. Uh, so it's like how, what percentage of, the user, of their employee base uses this every week. And that's kind of our main health metric. And it's very healthy at Facebook.
0: And finally, in this section, talk about the selling again, like you talked about when you sold the first company, what was this one like? This is an enormous figure for your company. Yeah,
2: you know, I'm not sure how much i can say because it hasn't closed yet. So I apologize for being a little cagey about it. But uh, at at the end of the day, I think largely this was about Mark and and, and my personal relationship and talking about our vision for the future. And so so it was a much uh, more like personal process. Did they approach
0: you? I know um, he's been on the hunt.
2: Unfortunately, I'm
0: going
1: to have oh, okay. to be a KG. I, I apologize. How about this? How did you celebrate? Can you, can you celebrate a $750 million sale in, in a cool way? Uh,
2: we bought a keg in the office. <laughs> so okay. So it was... You know?
1: Brett's not it's the exciting like entrepreneur who has the party yeah. dressed as
0: King Henry VIII. No,
2: no. We, <laughs> we, so well, we have a pretty frugal company, um, yeah. and I,
1: I care a lot about it's that.
0: wearing also. a gingham shirt. I'm
1: correct. sure it was a nice beer. It was a craft
0: brew, <laughs> as they say. Yeah. Right,
2: well, I think we had two cakes. So. Wow. Okay. Crazy. Crazy. Yeah.
0: Crazy. We're talking to Brett Taylor about a variety of things. His company, Quip, which recently sold to Salesforce, Facebook, Google. And when we get back, we're going to talk about Silicon Valley and his board ship at Perhaps one of the most interesting and challenging, I'm using challenging in a nice way, company's Twitter, where he's now become a board member. But first, a word from one of our sponsors. While others have been talking about 5G, Qualcomm has been creating it. Just as they pioneered many 3G and 4G technologies, they are now developing the technologies that will connect everything and leading the world to 5G. For years, they've been pushing the boundaries of LTE, collaborating with industry leaders and spearheading research efforts needed to make 5G a reality. Their innovations are critical to developing a wireless network designed to meet our world's ever-increasing data demands. 5G will provide a layer of connectivity fabric that is fundamental to everyday life. It will impact our jobs, our cities, our homes, and ourselves. So I've got a question for all of you. When you imagine a truly connected world, what comes to mind? Tell us your idea on Twitter. Use the hashtags whywait and sweeps, and we'll pick one lucky winner to have lunch with me and Lauren Good from Too Embarrassed to Ask. Tweet your idea, add hashtag whywait and hashtag sweeps, and you might get to break bread with Lauren and me, either in person or virtually via some device that Qualcomm probably invented. For contest rules, please visit recode.net slash whywait. You must be 18 to enter. The deadline is September 9th, and the monetary value of this lunch is 0.18 Bitcoin. I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka and this week I have the real Peter Kafka here in the San Francisco studio with me Peter who did you talk to this week
2: I didn't talk to anyone this week we got Ed Lee to do my work for oh, me oh excellent and what's he ta- who's he talking to he talked to Sam Dolnick and Cliff Levy from the New York Times uh, Cliff Levy is a masthead editor he's one of the guys mm-hmm. in the masthead yes and Sam Dolnick is one of the three guys who might ru- he's one of the three Salzburgers who might become the Salzburger who might end up running the New York Times
0: right there's a bake-off among salzburgers right and he's a cousin one of the cousins yes
2: so he is he's one of the three sort of in that race the gist of it was they're talking about how do you take a old newspaper and make it a new digital shiny product
0: did they figure it out
2: i don't know it's a secret
0: we'll see you can subscribe to recode media on itunes google play music or wherever you get your podcasts we're here with Brett Taylor, who is a longtime Silicon Valley entrepreneur. He's had companies like FriendFeed and Quip, both of which sold, one to Facebook, the first and the second just recently to Salesforce, which the deal is still pending. We've been talking about uh, why he does that, what he does as an entrepreneur, and we're going to talk a little bit about that now. But let's first talk about another thing you've done in the news, which is the board of Twitter. Yeah. Why?
2: Honestly, 100% of was because I love the product. Because
0: you were a competitor against it. We them. were.
2: I mean my social network friend feed mm-hmm. lost to Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. and I really believe in the service, which I kind of feel like the follower graph, uh, leads to this like sort of real time news oriented service that I think is really important for the world. And, you know, they approached me and, um, I was worried mainly about time commitments. I've got three small children in a startup mm-hmm. and I'm very sensitive about taking on commitments, but obviously I,
0: a nice wife, but go ahead.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, it was interesting because you know everyone's sort of aware of the problems they have, but the thing that's so unusual about Twitter is it's so important in the world. Like right. in this election and the Olympics, a lot of people read about things that happen sure. on Twitter, but they're not personally creating accounts and engaging in the service. And I really felt like there was an opportunity to close that gap. And I spent a lot of time with Omid and Jack, and I, I felt optimistic about working on that. And I knew that there's going to be a lot of business complexity in the business mm-hmm. for obvious reasons that everyone's been writing about, but. I just care so much about the service that I But it's uh, more, chose about, to more do. than
0: business Like I was with Mike McHugh, who was an yeah. ex board member, and they were competitive, and that's yeah. why he came off the board. And he was in his flipboard, and he was talking about that he really thinks the problem is Twitter is more of a phenomena than a company, <laughs> which I thought was, you know, and he said it on there I'm going to use it in a piece that I'm writing, but it's a really smart way to think about it. It's like it's really a phenomena. Obviously, journalists are super interested in it. It's a pretty small company for us to be so obsessively writing yeah. over it, but we do because we like it. It does have a phenomenon feel to it is you're saying with the Olympics, Donald Trump is the best Twitter ever, mm-hmm. right now, if you really think about it.
2: You could call it a phenomenon, but it's interesting because, you know, there are news articles about things that happen on Twitter, like it's right. importance that's because I think,
0: journalists lack creativity, but go, ahead. go that,
2: ahead. That's perhaps true, but there are also these interactions that only happen there. Yes. Um, it gives you the ability to participate in these real-time significant events and actually sort of feel like you're a part of it and participating in it in a way that's very unique. And I think all of us who use Twitter a lot really do yeah. feel that. And. I think the opportunity is that gap. It's like, can we actually like produce an experience where more people actually want to create an account and experience that for themselves and like articulate that value that I feel in the service in a more broad and mainstream way? The whole, it's a feature, not a company. It's mm-hmm. a, this, not a company. I, yeah. I also find those very reductive, you know, and I think and there's a lot of nuance to it. But I just feel like there's a lot of really meaningful stuff that is only on Twitter, and I think there's a most people in the world would benefit from experiencing that. But you know, the the company is struggling to sort of provide that value proposition to enough people. You know, I don't know exactly. I just joined the board. Mm -hmm. I only know stuff from afar, but. I do think the, the company's gone through a lot of management transition. It's gone through a lot of product leadership. I think the company hasn't had a lot of stability, and it's hard to know what's cause and what's effect. But I do think that there's just been sort of like some execution problems. I think, you know, I really believe in Jack's ability to turn around, to kind of focus on on more and execute faster, frankly. Mm-hmm. What's your role going to be on the board? You see yourself as like a product <clears throat> advisor or... What? Certainly they didn't bring me on for my financial expertise. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it was actually the main question I had when they approached me. is was like, why do you want a product person on your board? Because I've generally felt like the board is the wrong level to have product discussions. Mm-hmm. And I think they just felt they had a lot of uh, traditional representation on the board for things media. like... Yeah, media, finance, things like that. And they just wanted to have a more... A board where like the user and the product were represented more directly. And so that, that was sort of my expectation going in.
1: You know, when you first joined, this was before the Quip sale had been announced, there were a lot of people who thought you might then go run product at Twitter. Um, <laughs> it sounds like, though, you're yeah. pretty squarely seated Fancy at remerges, Yeah, no, I'm, I'm set at Quip. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But in, in the idea of this execution, you, know, you had seen the errors you made at FriendFeed, yeah. or, or not the errors, it just didn't work. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting about Twitter is how many execution problems, how many management mishaps can happen to one company with so much promise. I think everyone agrees the promise is there. Yeah, uh, People are worried about the product, whether the product is iterated enough. I think that's always something they talk about in Silicon Valley, but it should succeed. Yeah,
2: it's true. I mean, the best part about Twitter is how much the community uses it really loves that product. Mm -hmm. But it also makes it hard to make changes. You know, I think a few months ago, they announced we're going to rank timeline and there's this big uproar. And the thing that I think the reason why I feel optimistic about the company is because Jack is in charge. And I think Jack has the credibility to change that product in the way a external manager wouldn't. And, um, you know, the the community trusts him and and he obviously gets what makes Twitter special. So a little bit as I do think they've had trouble with execution and I do feel like bringing on the the founder and is one of the few ways you can actually like start to make changes of the product that's had execution problems in the past. And so I really am, I don't know if I would have joined the board had Jack not. Of course that's
0: fraught too because of the double CEO ship.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I just,
0: I'll just tell you recently I've gotten called by a lot of financial people and you know who they are. (laughs) Every one of them is shark who are all, thinking of attacking on that thing again, like having the same thing. And so, I mean, the noise around it is just extraordinary. And some of it deserves, some of it not deserved.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's challenging to be a public company and have issues in your company and have to make change. And, you know, we've seen this with Yahoo, we've seen mm-hmm. this with all these other companies and even LinkedIn and others. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to have that scrutiny. And you not only have the complexity of. You know, employee morale and employee retention and the product issues and all these other things. On top of that, you have the scrutiny of investors. And, but, uh, you know, that's why I joined the board. I was like, I want to help. Yeah. Um, I really just so care about the You Just run place.
0: into a fire, a building on fire.
2: I, you know, it's <laughs> interesting. It's true. And I, there was a lot of commentary from yeah. my friends and colleagues about oh, this. Good but God. I. I just love Twitter. I mean I really do. I don't know. I mean it's like I worked in a very similar product. I want it to exist. I want it to be healthy. Mm -hmm. And if I can like in any way contribute to that, I want to do it. And it's a little bit I guess hopelessly naive, but I'm that's the way I think about the world and I I really care about the product. So Yeah, you you tweet a lot, like which separates you from some of your board members. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, no, I love the service. I mean it's interesting. I I, you know, largely tweet about tech and Stanford football. People yeah. get annoyed on the weekends. Yeah. Um, but you I know, do
0: Trump, 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 Trump. Yeah, so, so there you go. Hey, people, you're outside your zone. I'm like, I'm not outside my zone. It's my zone. You know, I've
2: just connected with so many yeah. people I wouldn't have on there. Yeah. And I'm engaging with, you know, people I wouldn't have engaged with. And I just derive so much value from it. I can't imagine watching a live event and not having Twitter open. Yeah. Um, like, I, whenever the internet's bad at the Stanford Stadium, I'm like, I can't fully, you know, mm-hmm. experience. and. I believe that that experience is a mainstream experience, and the company just hasn't to date sort of made it a great experience for enough people. But I believe it can be, and that's, that's why I joined. I
0: want to finish up one thing with Twitter and then finish up with talking about Silicon Valley in general. The, the recent controversy, which I think I just had lunch with this, the CEO of Reddit and everything else, the cesspool nature of it. And now Twitter has talked about that it's not a technology problem, it's a technology problem too. Is that an important thing for you as a board, as a board in general to think about this? Because it really is something that can really bring companies down.
2: Oh, absolutely. Abuse is a, like a very important issue. And I agree with you. It, it needs to be fixed and should be fixed.
1: Did you deal with it at FriendFeed?
2: Oh, yes. I mean, every social service does. Mm. And Except I think- Facebook. Where you uh, just
0: get inundated with squirrel videos or cat
2: videos, which is just but, as but abusive. But there are anyway. lots of abu- no, not just as abusive. The, the interesting thing is, I'll speak more to Facebook because it's like a little bit simpler for me to talk about since I'm not on the board of it. Um, <laughs> and they, uh, the interesting thing is you have a lot of different tools at your disposal. You have sure. technology. You also have social mechanisms. So like how do you deal with like bullying? You right, know, they and, did. Mm-hmm. And you can do it, you know, instead of just technological things, you could report to the teacher. And mm-hmm. so I think the... You just need to have a teamwork on it. You need to use every tool at your disposal, both the social things and the technological things. Mm -hmm. But you have to take it really seriously and like get in front of it. And, And I... Uh, and I, I think it's a very important issue. So
0: Why is it that it's so vexing to these companies, all of them? Because one of the things, the two things, they, they're like, we're the smartest people in the world. Oh, we can't do anything about diversity and also abuse. And you're sort of like, I thought you were super smart at math. Or, you know, <laughs> I thought you were super fantastic. And yeah. is it really, is it a priority thing? I mean, be honest with yourself. Yeah, and- so,
2: I, you know, the companies where I've seen it fail, like, I'll just take, again, products I'm not on the board of. It's <laughs> like, you look at things like Reddit and mm-hmm. others. It does run up against the concepts that might be culturally important to the company, like free speech. Right. You know, like if we, which comments do we suppress and mm-hmm. why? And to define a framework by which you deal with abuse that doesn't run up against what were very real values of the company when it started is really challenging. And so you end up, I think, probably not taking assertive enough steps because you, you start to run up against some of those, sure. what I call like very deeply held beliefs that were probably the reason the product became successful in the first place and I saw a lot of those discussions around Reddit sure. that were you know on one hand you'd be like that's totally simplistic you can block this totally racist right. stuff on the other hand you can see why internally why that's there's yeah, like it's a slow
0: process. that's what Steve was talking about he yeah. goes sometimes I want to let it bloom and sometimes like no that's enough
2: yeah and, and and so it is I don't think anyone has bad intentions I do think though the media should hold people accountable like there's no excuse why there's diversity issues in Silicon Valley and they haven't found a way to solve it but it, it's 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 wrong. You're right. It's just wrong. Is it
0: because you all, and I'm, I'm not saying you're the white guy yeah. in the room, but you are. Like, yeah, no, I am. Like, no. you don't get abused as much. You don't get, you know, I mean, you're not subject to some of the things. And so it's hard to even believe when people complain about it. Well,
2: um, on the abuse issue, or diver- mm-hmm. you're talking about both? Yeah. Or, yeah so I, I do think they're think- so linked. They, oh that's interesting i wouldn't have said it but i i need to think about that more but like on the diversity issue a lot of these things are sort of self-fulfilling so if you don't source aggressively enough early in your company's life cycle and you end up with an, a team that is not diverse it's harder to fix that issue later because you don't want to be the only person from your your minority you know social group mm-hmm. at a company because then you're you encounter all the the problems that uh, you know everyone who's a, in a less represented group understands and and so really you have to be assertive from day one, and if you're not, turning that around is even harder. You have to work way harder on sourcing, you have to work way harder on sort of like fixing the cultural issues that manifested themselves because you weren't diverse. And I just think companies aren't trying hard enough, and I, I agree with the criticism.
0: Well, I think they just feel like they it's not their fault and they're trying, and it, that's not good enough. You trying know? is not good enough. Yeah. You
2: need to, I mean, it's like you wouldn't have an earnings call and say, we tried really hard, yeah. but like the earnings just didn't come through. That's Yahoo. And, uh, you <laughs> see what happened there. And so I, I think the criticism they is completely try, correct on this issue. And um, it is harder because it is a um, self-fulfilling prophecy. You do have to find the right candidates. It's harder to find qualified candidates. But you have to try harder on that part of the pipeline if you actually want to achieve the end goal that you have to actually have your employee base represent the population. And uh, I don't think we as an industry have actually treated it with, like, that level of accountability, and we should.
0: Right. I mean, it's fascinating that Peter Thiel can spend all his money ruining a group of people that he considers mean. And there's so much meanness everywhere. Why doesn't he take his ridiculous billions and try to stop that? Like, that's what's important because his friends got yelled at. Like, he didn't like that abuse.
2: Yeah, you know, it's also interesting. I mean, it's sort of easier in some ways to say I'm going to give a lot of money for a scholarship. It's hard to actually, like... Source and hire. No, exactly. Lots of employees. No, he, I, it's like, I, I think that's where the gap has been. Right. There's been all the soft stuff, or even it's well, not his like people, wasn't soft. Yeah. I, mean, I think the issue is talked about a lot. That's yeah. great. Step one. But I think the execution is lacking. And right. uh, I think it's absolutely good that people are holding companies more accountable.
1: I have one more Twitter related question before right, we jump to ahead. Silicon Valley stuff. Uh, as a diehard user of the product, what feature are you just we're going to push. Excited for, yeah. You have Jack's ear, so yeah, you're, that's an, a good you're an advantage.
2: Every feature that Twitter's added that lets me put more stuff in my tweet, cards, photos, I, I love it. And I want tweets to be more expressive. Um, and I'm excited. I don't you know know all the stuff that they're developing there, but I feel like... 140 characters was just the beginning and I love that my yeah, like timeline has China and everyone. Yeah, it's like you see every time I see a video or a quote or a this or a that and all the stuff people are stuffing into screenshots. I feel like there's so much opportunity there and really it's like such a rich experience now that yeah, I hope look at Snapchat, we, right? Yeah. More. Save for
0: their idiotic filters, some of them. Let's finish up by talking very briefly about Silicon Valley. Where do you think it is now? There is a selling cycle going on. There's a. Where are we in the innovation cycle? Everyone always agonizes over that. For, as a longtime entrepreneur, you sold a company. Do you want to start another one? Do you feel we're we're in a slower period of innovation? Or
2: well, for me personally, I'm committed to Salesforce right now mm-hmm. and uh, committed for the long term. But. The broader question about where Silicon Valley is. Because you're an investor too. Right. Um, a little bit. I don't do a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, just I don't have the time, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think that like early stage investing. I feel like, I feel I'm not sure it's going to dip too much. I think we've created a really healthy ecosystem. I think like things like Y Combinator were some of the best things to happen to the Valley. Where we now don't just have. Series A investments where you have to know someone to know somebody. You mm-hmm. have these like broader programs where I think we're, it's a much more inclusive uh, sort of early stage investment environment than when I came out of college. And that's really great. And I feel like it, I'm not going to say it's self-fulfilling. These things all go through cycles, but it's small enough amounts of money that I think it's you know, very, even if the entire late stage market collapses, I think there's going to be a, a lot of early stage investment. I think the thing that I've really been interested in reading is like Bill Gurley's comments on when to go public and late-stage investment yeah. and the investment structures that these late-stage investors have. I feel like that's the thing that has been changing over the past yeah, year. nobody continue wants stage. to go public, right? I do think people, you know, have been waiting too long to go public. And I think it creates weird... So one of the things that you only know if you're in the Valley, but is true... When you leave a company, you have to pay to exercise your options or you lose them. Mm -hmm. But that was sort of started within 90 days or something like that, usually. And some companies have started to choose different structures, but that's the norm that was started on the premise that like the company would have liquidity within your existence at the company. Mm-hmm. Now you can work at a company for seven years right. and leave and you have well, to like, We wrote
0: about it with One Kings Lane. Everyone yeah. Got shafted,
2: and so I do think that like a lot of the like structures of private companies were based on the premise that, you know, you'd end up having liquidity within some reasonable period of time. And now that that's changed, I feel like both employee incentives are, are different. You still have like, heavy stock low cash like how long can you endure in a the bay area like Mm -hmm. not getting paid a lot of cash and um, similarly I think that like there's a lot of advantages to being public too like look at all the acquisitions you can do and hmm. I, I feel like that is going to shift. Um, so it's to be cool again? I believe so and I think people like Bill Gurley who I really respect are like articulating in, in a more like intellectually rigorous way than I am. He's just trying to prod Travis into going yeah, public. Yeah, perhaps that's it maybe he'll stop after that um, but I uh, also think there are is some consolidation going on I think the um, strength of sort of the big four, big five, depending on how you count it, is growing. And I think you're going to see a lot of consolidation as well.
1: I'm I'm curious if you've noticed, and since you don't invest a ton right now, maybe not, but I'm curious if you've noticed if Silicon Valley has indeed been kind of bleeding into other areas. And like, I know we've talked about this a lot, right, with Silicon Beach down in LA or whatever. And I don't know, I guess I'm curious, do you feel like it truly is starting to become a there are other tech hubs out there that are viable for, for this kind of stuff or not really?
2: You know, I don't. So I'm going to give sort of my <laughs> instinctive answer because I don't invest enough to actually have stats on this. But, you know, you see great L.A. companies like Snapchat and that's great. Great Seattle companies, New York companies for all of the growth in yeah. those areas. Silicon Valley has grown faster. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I there is a unique thing here where, you know, I, I did FriendFeed. By many metrics, that was just a failed company, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, like in Silicon Valley, it was a great success. It was a good financial a outcome. Yeah. Um, the product was influential. People respect it. Mm-hmm. People are like, Friend, I loved FriendFeed. Yeah. You know, I loved what you guys did. I don't know of that culture of like celebrating failure, the availability of capital, the availability mm-hmm. of talent, it is a very unique place. And there's so many variables. It's not one thing. It's not just like there's capital to be invested. It's how it's invested. And, you know, for example, I know friends in Canada and the investment terms they get are just so much worse because, whereas here, the investors say, well, this probably won't be the first company this person starts. So I want to, you know, I want to maintain my relationship. and, And the terms are friendlier, the availability is higher. Like, So I think Silicon Valley is very unique. Yeah, there's Um, a
0: suspension of disbelief here. Yeah, it is.
2: And so you'll hear a lot of people talk about what's bad about it. I do think the things that are great about it far outweigh it, and it's why it's sort of self-fulfilling.
0: All right, last question I ask everyone, entrepreneurs, and you're a longtime one. What's the biggest mistake you've made that you learned something from entrepreneurs are listening to you, Brett?
2: Yeah, so when I started FriendFeed, I'm an engineer. So I'm the typical engineer, antisocial, I'll say... Actually, intro- you're
0: more well-spoken than most of them. That's Well,
2: thank you. I'm introverted, let's yeah. put it that way. And so the most comfortable thing for me is to sit behind a computer and, and you know write code or make products. And I think growing a team is really important. And it's a very, like, you have to go out and talk to people and get rejected a lot. And mm-hmm. you're convincing people who are getting paid ungodly sums of money at Google to take a big risk and join your team. And we just didn't spend enough time, like, building the team and recruiting because it's really uncomfortable. I mean, being rejected all day, starting conversations when you're an introvert. And at Quip, we were just way more assertive about it. And I think the quality of our team is just exceptional because of that. So the thing, the broader thing is, like, when you're an entrepreneur, I think you default to the things you're most comfortable with. And, like, figuring out to be self-aware enough to know the things you should Mm -hmm. be doing, even if they're not comfortable – I was much better at that the second time around than the first time around, where I would just naturally settle into what I did. Most right, that's very
0: Zuckerbergian self improvement. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, he does. Remember how you talked New Year's resolution? He did. He does. He learned it. He he's, learned to talk. He's
2: way better at that. One time we I'm had not going to learn Chinese anymore. <laughs> no, I know, but we had a
0: conversation of more than five minutes. Ago. I've been practicing my conversations. I was like, really? <laughs> like it was really funny. It was a long time ago, but he did. He did. and He's gotten better. It's yeah. very interesting. You're right. It's true. You you do default to what you're good it's at. It's true. Absolutely true. Yeah. Anyway, Brett, this has been Fascinating! Thank you so much for coming by. And I'm sorry we ran a little late there, but you're fascinating to talk to. And thank you, Kurt. Thank you. For doing this lovely conversation. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with Walker & Company CEO Tristan Walker, Chaos Monkey author Antonio Garcia Martinez, and former Coursera president Daphne Kohler, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Two Embarrassed Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Try to listen to the Elon Musk interview. It's one crazy interview we did this year in May. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our sponsors, Audible and Qualcomm. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes the show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then.